Very good evening to you. It's good to be here again. It's a few years since I've been in Hamilton Baptist. I'm probably new to some of you. Um, I had the privilege of being moderator prior to David uh, Wilson becoming your pastor. We were trying to work out, Nathan and I were trying to work out how many years ago that was now, but it's six plus around about that, is it? We can't work that one out, but we'll find out a bit later anyway. Um, but church has changed quite a bit since I was here last time, although there's a few faces uh, here as well. But um, thank you very much for the invitation. I love to share God's word. And during Easter week, well, what better week uh, to preach the word of God uh, when we're thinking about, I think Easter is always, always uh, it's more of a highlight even than Christmas, because it's the, the whole climax of the life and the ministry of Christ that we're thinking about this week. And today being Palm Sunday, the week uh, before Easter Sunday, when we're thinking about all of the events that took place during that week uh, up to the uh, tremendous resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate next week. There are downs and up uh, times through the whole of this week where we think about the various events that went on. I would imagine it's uh, difficult for us. We're going to have a first slide here, just the Gethsemane slide there. Uh, you'll recognize, by the way, anybody who's been on that trip to Israel, that that is the Garden of Gethsemane, an image of it as it is today with the olive trees there uh, on the background, in the background. Uh, but I've chosen this evening to speak on the theme of Gethsemane. It's difficult for us to imagine just how traumatic and distressing it was for Jesus in the closing days of his life. We're going to see something of the, uh, the events here when I come to the Bible reading, because I always integrate my Bible readings, by the way. I'm not preaching without reading the Word, don't worry. I always like to read the Scriptures, but I like to give a context to the Scripture reading. So we're thinking about Jesus and the trauma and distress that he went through in the closing days and weeks of his life. From the casual observer's point of view, from the outward appearance of things, it might have looked like, to those who were watching all of the events but weren't actually participating as disciples, that Jesus' world was... Um, a world where he was watching the crumbling commitment and failing loyalty of the people who Jesus had surrounded himself with. That's what it might have looked like with some of the things that began to happen. You've got Peter's denial, you've got Judas' betrayal, you've got uh, disciples scattering and losing faith and Losing the whole script, as it were, or it appears that way. Yet this is only a mere snapshot in time. And it's in complete contrast when we look at any of these rather depressing events like the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a complete contrast to the victory that we celebrate on Easter Sunday when Jesus has been triumphant at the cross and it rises from death and appears as a witness to so many. The Garden of Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus faced and won a crucial battle. 
He faced and won a crucial battle. Um, here in, this, in the, the garden, with, when we're thinking about the garden here, Jesus was aware of what he was going to be going through. He knew that he was going to go to the cross, and it must have been terrifying for him. It was. And he's there in the garden and he's praying. He prays that there might be some other way, and finally he yields to the Father's will. Let's look at the Bible reading. There are various versions of it, but uh, there's one in Matthew's Gospel, and that's the one we'll cover this evening from Matthew chapter 26, and the words of the screen will come up, words will come up on the screen here if you want to follow them, or you can follow in them in your own copy of the Bible. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Peter, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The Garden of Gethsemane is a quiet place just outside the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. And Gethsemane means olive press. Here's an image of a, an olive press, and it's um, almost symbolic that Jesus enters into this garden and called the, the olive press uh, because of the pressure that he is going to go through in that garden. And this almost typifies the pressure that Jesus was under as he prayed. Understandably, we think of the cross of Christ as the place where the victory was won, where the battle against evil and against Satan uh, was won, where Satan was defeated as Jesus atones for our sin as our representative and substitute. But there were other battles to be won in advance of this other victories to be accomplished. And one of these is in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can liken the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane somehow to the experience of Adam in the Garden of Eden. There's temptation going on here. 
with both Adam and with Jesus. Of course, with Adam and Eve in the garden, as we have in the early books of Genesis, uh, early chapters of Genesis, we have a, a picture here of temptation to mistrust and disobey. That is essentially the sin of Adam and Eve. As they take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they take the fruit from this. It is an act of disobedience and, and distrust in, in God. And this brings about the effect of the fall, the, almost like the contamination or the, this destruction or the warping of the spiritual DNA of humankind so that all of the descendants of Adam, we ourselves, are tainted and affected by the fall. We are sinners by nature. But Christ is described in the letters of the New Testament as the second Adam. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, we read, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. And in the, Paul's letter to the Romans, he's described as the second Adam. Why is this? Because in the Garden of Eden, Adam is tempted and he falls. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is tempted and he overcomes. And he reverses the effect of the fall. When I was preparing this sermon, I, was, I, remembered, I remember hymn tunes and hymn, words of hymns. Um, I don't know, I can almost, re I can quote hymns. I think some of you who have been Christians for many years probably can do the same. It's possibly because we sing and read uh, and express all at the same time that we, it helps our memory of these. But one of these wonderful hymns is by John Henry, Henry Newman, Praise to the Holiest in the Height. And he picks up on the theme of Jesus being the second Adam. And I'll read three of these verses to you. O oh, loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O oh, wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. This is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane that's being referred to here as the second Adam. And then uh, another verse in which John Henry Newman applies this theme. And in the garden secretly, that's Gethsemane. And in the garden secretly and on the cross on high, should teach his brethren and inspire to suffer and to die. Jesus not only lived as the one who would become the saviour, but he also lived as our example. His life is exemplary, and even the way that he prays within the garden is exemplary for us. He instructs the disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation. Should teach his brethren and inspire to suffer and to die. None of us could really begin to appreciate the intensity of the pressure that Jesus underwent 
when he was in the garden. All of hell must have been pitted against him. Every trick in the book, every, every uh, demon that would inspire fear must have focused like uh, some laser beam, as it were, on Christ. Anything to stop him from going to the cross. Because the victory that he would win on the cross would reverse all of the effects of Adam's sin and make a way for us to be saved. This was the most momentous uh, event almost in history where Christ is going to go to the cross and atone for us and Satan will do nothing, will, will do everything to stop him. Uh, from doing so. We face temptation too. And temptation isn't only to do that which is wrong. Temptation is also a temptation to fail to do what is right. You and I may have spoken to people who don't actually see themselves as sinners. We are actually all sinners. We just need to be educated uh, and understand that to be true and self-aware enough to actually recognize that. But it doesn't sit very readily with us to think of ourselves sometimes as sinners. And people will say, well, I don't do any harm to anybody. But actually there are sins of omission as well. We fail to do that which is right and we're unaware of those things that we actually have done wrong and we kind of somehow reduce them as though they weren't, weren't really of any great significance. For Jesus to sin here would have been for Jesus or for Jesus to fail to Yield to the will of the Father would for Jesus to have be, to uh, to sin. It would have been sinful for Jesus to fail to do that which was right for him to do, to be obedient to the will of the Father. This truth is recognised in the 1928 Anglican Book of Common Prayer, and and in the the words of the prayer, which you can see on the screen there. Um, they're well put together. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and de desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. And in James chapter 4, verse 17, we read, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Is it any wonder we need the cross? Is it any wonder that we need the blood of Jesus for our sins, not only that we have committed, but because we have sinned in that we have omitted to do all that God would have us do? When God's commands have come to us, we have said, no. Jesus is an example to us. How are we to react when we are under pressure? 
Jesus shows us how. The enormity of what Jesus was about to go through causes him this terrible distress. He's troubled in his spirit. He's sorrowful. He's also worried about the disciples because of the temptations that they are going to go through. And he models for them and for us how to handle severe times of testing. He prayed. And he invited the disciples to pray with him. In contrast to this, how did the disciples handle the situation? They slept. In a crisis, it's all too easy to sleep, isn't it? We do it. We can sleep instead of praying. We can escape with our heads under the duvets. Because in sleep, we're, we, have, we find our peace. We wake, and then our first waking thoughts are the distress that we want to get away from. We need to sleep sometimes, but not to sleep only. We need also to pray, and to pray issues through with God. How did the situation appear to the disciples? It could have looked to the disciples that Jesus had gone off script. We've been going around, we've been preaching, he's been doing the miracles and everything else, and then all of a sudden, I've never seen Jesus like this. Their Messiah doesn't appear to be what they thought he was. And they're on a learning curve. They're only seeing a snapshot in time. And that's a danger. If we see a situation that looks, in all intents and purposes, like defeat, not victory, like things have gone totally pear-shaped and are going wrong, when we pray, we can actually gain a new perspective, a divine perspective. We stand, as it were, in the place where God is looking out, and we see things from God's point of view as our eyes are opened in the place of prayer to see that actually what we're looking at isn't the whole story. And it's, you can interpret that story in a very different way when you hear from God and see the bigger, broader picture as we can, because we know the whole story, they didn't see the whole picture. And it's probably because of their prayerlessness that they looked out on a bleak situation. But this was no permanent demise. It was an extremely difficult moment for the Saviour and for the disciples prior to the greatest accomplishment and victory of all. And they would only be able to see it in the place of prayer. And it's very easy for us to identify with the disciples. You might be going through a really tough time at the moment. And you're looking forward to getting home and sticking that duvet over your head and then having a good long lie-in in the morning because you don't want the waking hours the way you're feeling about that situation. I understand that. Sleep is necessary, but we need more than that. 
And in prayer, we can hear from God in ways that speak into our lives and help us to see an entirely different interpretation. These disciples wanted to be loyal and supportive to Jesus. But they were overwhelmed with tiredness and stress. And Jesus' most challenging words, I I still find these words challenging, to these disciples were, couldn't you keep watch for one hour? It's almost like a rebuke, isn't it? I don't think Jesus here is asking for prayer support, as it were, from the disciples, although I think it would have been quite nice if they had been awake and had been praying, because what he says to them is, uh, watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. He doesn't want them to fall into temptation. And they did. They did because they didn't pray in that way. What does it mean to watch and pray? To watch surely means to be spiritually vigilant. To watch and pray means to be spiritually vigilant and then to commune with God in the light of what we see. There's something wonderful about prayer. That when we enter into that relationship with God in prayer, we see things we didn't see before. We don't need to pray for hours and hours to get that. We just need to pray regularly, perhaps make it a way of life. I don't know whether you pray continually through the day, just asking God about things. Some people like just to push all their prayer times into maybe a 15-minute slot or a half-hour thing. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good discipline. But I think if we can broaden that out to pray about everything during the day, quietly, when we're out and about or at home, to seek God concerning all of the matters that we know that we should be praying for is a good discipline. So we see then Jesus became extremely distressed at the thought of what he was going to go through. It wasn't only the arrest and the trial and the flogging and the humiliation and the crucifixion. These were distressing enough, but imagine the perfect Son of God and Saviour of the world, somehow taking upon him the wrath of God against sin. Not that God somehow was angry with him, as it were. We're not splitting God into three parts here. We're dealing with the mystery of the Trinity. We're dealing with love here. A son who loves us so much and loves the Father so much that he's willing to do the Father's will in order that we be saved because there is no other way. Just as the hymn writer says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. And the love of the Father that says it's so distressing to send my son, but he is willing and this is the only way and we agree together. That kind of picture, I know I'm making an anthropomorphic kind of uh, interpretation of it all, but it's the only way to somehow unpack this mystery of the... Uh, what they call the perichoresis of the Trinity, where you've got the interaction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the triune God we worship, whom we can never fully understand, but only understand that in God there is relationship, therefore there is love. 
And that love was expressed to us by God through the sending of his son and his willingness to come for us. And here he faces in this moment the realization that very soon the time is coming when his soul will be exposed to all of the awfulness of human sin for every person for all time, as it were. You can't imagine what went through his mind as he made this sacrifice for us, taking himself the penalty for sin that we could not pay. I would love to go into the book of Hebrews and start unpacking the, uh, the way that the writer to the Hebrews describes from the Old Testament uh, the imagery that comes up from the perfect lambs being sacrificed that prepared the mind to um, the Jewish mind to understand the necessity of perfection in order for a sacrifice to be acceptable to God. But there is no time for that this evening. What's the lesson that we're learning from this? What's, what's the message that's coming? The message that certainly came to me as I was preparing this is that prayer gives us a divine perspective on life's events that might otherwise be missed or misunderstood. Prayer gives us a divine perspective on life's events that might otherwise be missed or misunderstood. They see this picture of Jesus in the garden, in distress, and they don't understand it because they're not praying. They see defeat, not victory. They don't understand what's coming and they're not prepared for it because they've not been a prayer. And as a result of this, they were entirely unprepared for what was to take place next. And in all appearance, chaos breaks out. One disciple's already betrayed him, or is about to betray him, should I say. Another one denies him. And all the other ones run off, including John Mark, perhaps. Jesus is arrested, he's tried, he's flogged, he's crucified and dies. Does this look like victory? What does it look like to the journalist of the day, if you like, if there were ever, ever such people? They could, what kind of headline would they have written in the paper? Messianic dream comes to an end. Um... I don't know what they would write. But everybody looked at it and they thought, the whole thing's just gone pear-shaped. Oh, no, it hadn't. There are low points in the life of every Christian. You and I. And in every church, too. How do we handle these low points? We may, well, we may well retreat into slumber, but we'd be far wiser to remember to be vigilant and to pray in order that we may gain that divine perspective on things which might otherwise be missed or misunderstood. 
The Garden of Gethsemane is a reminder to us of the value of spending time with the Father as Jesus did. There are key moments, I believe, in each of our lives when we are called upon God to make a choice. You could, go, you could have one this evening. You could receive a phone call this evening. Something could happen this evening or tomorrow. or Maybe it happened last week. But there are these key moments in our lives. And sometimes it's a call from God. In a church, it could be God is you know, your sense that God really wants you to do a particular task within a church and you know actually that it's you that, and everybody else knows it's you and there's the confirmation there and you're thinking, I really don't want to do this. A key moment. And if we say no, it has a trajectory, it has an, an impact, it has a but if we say yes and we are prepared to give ourselves to a particular task, then that also has an outcome. If I could uh, put the, uh, the butterfly effect slide on uh, next here. We have these um, moments or experiences to which we must respond, make a choice that eventually have an impact. And these can be positive or negative. I'm using the butterfly effect here as... Uh, some of you will probably be familiar with chaos theory, uh, the, the whole idea, and I think it's epitomized by this butterfly that flaps its wings somewhere in some jungle uh, in the Amazon and uh, ultimately creates a hurricane elsewhere. It's an oversimplification of the, the whole idea of um, one single event and how it impacts. I've started writing, uh, never written before, but I've up to chapter 11 now of, um, it is a memoirs one, but it's memoirs with a difference, and it all started with finding a coin in a car park, uh, which triggered something for me. Uh, but I'll, I'll not go into much detail in it. But to illustrate from what I'm writing at the moment, I've traced back to a time when my father, years ago, was working in Nottingham, and I was, a, I think, an 11-year-old in Nottingham and just started secondary school. He had a bad day at work, a particularly bad day at work. And on the basis of that bad day at work, he chose, he said, I've had enough, I'm leaving and I'm moving. And we up sticks and we went to live in South Wales and it it was a total disaster. Um, I wouldn't be here preaching to you now because all of the events from that bad day in work would have been totally different. And I went through a really difficult time because of the decision that he made, which wasn't a wise decision, and I think in retrospect he recognised that himself. We soon moved on again. Didn't do very much for my secondary education, being in one, two, three separate secondary schools in three different places. Um, But it's an illustration of how one event, one event on one day at work, impacted hit on him. That was the moment. His response was, I'm leaving. He chose to do so. We left, and it had an impact on our lives as a family, which totally, trans- totally changed uh, the outcomes for me and for, for my, the people I met. And it's astonishing how one little thing like that can have such a huge impact. 
Imagine if Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had said no. There would be no salvation. What would the world look like? Jesus did this as our saviour. But he has also done so as our example. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, either to do wrong or to fail to do that which is right. What is going to impact you this week? What is impacting you at this time? How are you responding to that? Maybe somebody has hurt you. And you have allowed the anger to well up within you until it's become a silent rage. And you are determined, in a passive-aggressive kind of way, to take your revenge and to uh, somehow administer poison into the lives of others. That, well, that's a rather graphic way of putting it, but we can be like that when we're hurt. And all the time God is pleading with you as a believer saying, don't do it. Accept the injustice. What does it say in the Lord's Prayer? I was looking at these words here. Uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you hear that? But rage has got almost a life of its own and you you want to be carried along with it because you feel that justice has not been done. It's an example of how we handle life situations in a moment and the way we respond to it, the choices that we make and the impact on others. I have seen the destruction that is wrought through unwise and sinful responses to what has happened to people, one individual. But I've also seen the impact of the other way around. You get people like George Verwer, founder of Operation Mobilization. Imagine an entrepreneur like George Verwer suddenly dreaming a dream one day and thinking, do you know, maybe we could do this. We could somehow campaign to get a ship. I mean, it seems like a wild idea. Imagine somebody saying to you in the congregation after, why don't we get, take an initiative and, and we could maybe raise enough money to buy a big, a big vessel, a big shipping vessel, and we could call on volunteer Christians and we could take books to different parts of the world. And you might look at him and think, nah, what's he on? Yeah. But he is some, a guy with a vision who, and a call from God and it wasn't just one ship, was it? It was two ships, and then one got wrecked, I think, and the other was a third. I think the rock Logos ran, a, ran aground somewhere in South America. Remember that being on the news. But he did it. He followed through on the call of God. How many people have been reached through Operation Mobilization? Through the decision of one person to respond to a sense of call from God to make a choice 
and have such an impact upon not just that immediate generation, but on all the generations that have followed for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, for the salvation of souls, for the populating of heaven in the hereafter. We've got these choices. This challenges me. When I struggle, I want to stick my head under the pillow as well, rather than pray. And when we're struggling, when we're praying, we think, oh, it feels as though God isn't answering. But that's how we feel. God is there, and God, has, God is not deaf. He doesn't need hearing aids. He hears very well our prayers when we're in distress. And if, we're, if we spend enough time with God, God will show us things we haven't seen before. God is in control. God is in control of Brexit, by the way. Nobody else is. <laughs> and that's another situation we can be at prayer for. What is God saying to the nation? What's God saying to us as Christians through all of this? Watch and pray. Let's pray together. Father, as we've been looking into the scriptures again this evening and visited that garden, as it were, and seen the Lord Jesus at prayer and heard that challenge afresh to us, could you not watch with me one hour? You have reminded us of the place of prayer and its value in times of distress that we may go through. You've reminded us of the impact and the outcome of making wise and godly choices, refusing to do that which is wrong and choosing to do that which we are called upon to do. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and motivate us, Lord, to honour you. Grant to us the grace that we need as we call out to you as those who desire to be impact makers for the kingdom of God. Help us to do so in the small things and in the great things. May our lives truly bring you honour. In Jesus' name, amen.